This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Well, listen, hey, we've got a lot to talk about today. This is sermon number three in our Bible prophecy series. Bible prophecy in itself is a complicated task. And uh, you would be surprised of pastors and teachers that just naturally stay away from these subjects. And there's a variety of reasons why they do it. Uh, one in particular is because it requires a lot of study and diligence and application, and uh, people are not willing to put that kind of time in it. And a lot of people are scared of it. And uh, But I think that I have been preaching it long enough for you to know that it is in the Bible, and the Word does tell us to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. I'm responsible for all of it. I'm responsible not only to preach it, but I'm only uh, a human, and God knows my frailties. But not only am I responsible to preach all of it, but God does hold me accountable to preach it right, to preach it correct. That's what you need. You need the truth. And so it's with great joy that I enter into this annually. And I've been doing so for the last 20 plus years. And I pray that it is a blessing to your heart. And today in sermon number three, we're going to be talking about the judgment seat of Christ. This is very important. And even though we've got to move fast, this message requires me to be a little repetitious all throughout the sermon because there are so many facts and I'm going to do my best to keep them in perspective for you. And that requires me to mention a couple of things more than once. And so we're going to start today with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, I have two primary goals as a pastor. Beyond my first and foremost, I should say maybe three, my first and foremost is to win people to Christ. That's, that's the ultimate uh, desire that I have, and I believe that's what Jesus was talking about, not only being a testimony when he, when he said, be salt and light, but he wanted us to be a witness of the truth. But here's the thing, beyond witnessing, beyond my responsibility that I have to win people to Christ, I have an ultimate responsibility to help you in this life while we're here to live for Jesus in the best possible way that you can. That's, that's a paramount goal that I have. To take this Bible, to preach it in truth, and to help you live as close to the cross as you possibly can. That's number one. But not only do I have a responsibility to help you to live for Jesus in this life, but I have a responsibility to help prepare you for the judgment seat of Christ. And that is the thing that we're talking about today, the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. Let's read the scripture. And we have to remember that the Apostle Paul is the one that's writing this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good 
or bad. For those of you who are not familiar with the particular time that we are living in right now, according to biblical time, a biblical perspective of the time in which we're living now, you might want to make a note of this because this is important. We are living in right now what is called the dispensation of grace. The Old Testament people were living under the dispensation of the law. But after the book of Malachi, when we entered into the days of the New Testament, when Jesus died on the cross, a new dispensation was born. And it's called the dispensation of grace. In the book of Acts, we're told how God sent the Holy Spirit to initiate the beginning of this day of grace, this dispensation of grace, which was birthed on the day of Pentecost, basically primarily after the Lord died. But in Acts chapter 2, you can find the refreshment of God sending the Holy Spirit through a rushing mighty wind. Most of you are familiar with that passage. In the prelude of all of that, Jesus had earlier declared to Simon Peter that he, talking about himself, Jesus, he said he was going to be the rock whom the church would be built upon. Now, I know that there are denominations who have taken that scripture out of context and believe that Jesus was saying, Peter, I'm going to build the church upon you. Jesus wasn't saying that. Jesus was telling Peter that he was going to build the church upon himself. That's what he said. But here is the interesting thing. Jesus is not building this ecclesia, this called out assembly. He is not building the church with bricks and mortar. Jesus is building the church with believers. Understand this. This is important. And I want you to listen carefully to this today. Just as the dispensation of grace had its beginning, it will also have its ending. Grace began at the cross, but it will end with the rapture. Let me say that again. Grace began with the cross the resurrection, but it will end, the day of grace, the dispensation of grace will end at the rapture. And as I have already said, that the rapture is the next prophetic thing on God's calendar. The Bible clearly teaches us how the rapture will begin. This is for our refreshment today because it's going to perpetuate us to the judgment seat. But look with me at the scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 through 18. This is a familiar passage, but I think it's necessary to build upon this morning. There are several key components of this scripture that you need to underline, make a note of in your writings or in your Bible. Look at this carefully. Again, the apostle Paul is writing. He says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout 
with the voice of the archangel. And I'd like for you to underline those two words, the archangel. With the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me say this, and I want to emphasize this. Hear the word archangel, and it's an important word, but it's a word that is only mentioned in the scripture twice. In all 66 books, the word archangel is only mentioned twice. Here in this particular passage, and also in the one chapter book of Jude, verse number nine. And that scripture says, yet Michael, the archangel, again, underline those two words, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. That word durst means dared. Dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. <clears throat> and so I want you to notice this word archangel is never in the two times that it's mentioned in the scripture. It's never mentioned in the plural tense. Those of you who are grammar students, English students, you know what I'm talking about. This is never used in the plural tense. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> Paul uses the word the archangel. It's mentioned in the singular tense. And here also in the book of Jude, the same way. Singular means one. And I find that important to mention because I know people believe and, and we write songs about it. Even the Virginia boys sing songs like the Midnight Cry and there are beautiful words and it's a beautiful melody and beautiful songs have been written. But I want you to understand something that we are not waiting for Gabriel to sound the trumpet. Gabriel is not going to be the trumpet player that awakens the dead and begins to present that wonderful melody that makes us all rise with a glorified body and meet the Lord in the air. That's not how it's going to be. Nowhere in the Bible does the word archangel ever refer to Gabriel in the two times that the scriptures mention the word archangel. It always mentions Michael. And it emphasizes the word, the archangel. Now, number two, let us move quickly. <clears throat> we meet the Lord in the air. That's important. Now, we just read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18. But I want you to go back to that text and look carefully with me at verse number 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Look at this. To meet the Lord in the air. That's not outer space. That's not the galaxies. That's not where the sun is. Jupiter, Pluto, Mars. That's not where the air is. 
I don't have time this morning to preach in depth on the three heavens, but there are three. The first heaven is where the clouds are. The second heaven is where the sun, the moon, the stars are. And the third heaven is where God's throne is. This passage clearly teaches us that we meet the Lord in the air. That's going to be the first heaven. Now, notice this. When this happens, notice how the Bible says this, to meet the Lord in the air. You see, this meeting, the judgment seat of Christ is not actually where the third heaven is. It's not actually in heaven. It's not on the earth, so to speak, the dirt, the ground of the earth. And it's not in the third heaven where God's throne is. Last Sunday, I gave you the text, even though we were watching a recorded service that I recorded Friday before the Sunday, I talked about where eagles fly. And Jesus said, that's where we're going to meet him, in the air where eagles fly. Eagles don't fly in space. Now, listen to this. The judgment seat of Christ will take place in the air. Now let's look at it quickly. Number three, who will be at the judgment seat? I want to emphasize something to you. Pay close attention. I do this every year, but I want to make sure you get it, that there is a distinct difference between the rapture and the revelation. When the rapture takes place, you have just read it, the dead in Christ rise first. Then we, it's not talking about a generic population of the world. It's talking about those who know Christ, who are redeemed. Those who looked forward to the cross. Those who looked back on the cross. And by the way, there's going to be an additional resurrection for some of the Old Testament saints. We, I'm not getting into that right now. But the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Here's what I want you to know, that there will not be one single unbeliever at the judgment seat. Not one unbeliever will be taken in the rapture. The rapture is when we meet Jesus in the air where eagles fly. The world will enter into a seven-year tribulation period when that happens. We go from the judgment seat, which is the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Then we move from that aspect to what is called the marriage supper of the lamb, which is the last three and a half years of the tribulation. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, we have gone from the judgment seat to the marriage supper of the lamb. Then the Lord Jesus returns in the revelation. That is when the battle of Armageddon will be fought. He comes to the Mount of Olives. The scripture teaches us in Zechariah 14.4 that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. According to the scriptures, the mountain will cleave in two. Jesus will defeat the Antichrist. He will lead the sainted millions down the slopes of the Mount of Olives. We will cross what is called the Kidron Valley. This is literally going to happen now. This is not a figment of imagination, and this is not a paraphrase. This is going to happen. King Jesus will return. He will lead us down the sainted millions riding white stallions, white horses. You say, well, I don't ride horses. I would suggest you practice. <laughs> because whether you want to or not, you're going to be saddled up 
We'll come down the mountain. He'll lead us across the Kidron Valley. He will lead us through the Eastern Gate. He will lead us now to where he takes his place on the throne of David, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, this is important. After the 1,000 years, we enter into a place where there is going to be just unbelievable chaos where the devil now believes he is going to defeat God once and for all. And uh, that's another message, and I don't have time to go into that, but he is defeated. He is a defeated foe. After the millennium, it's then, after the millennium, that the lost will be judged. The lost will not be judged in the air where eagles fly at the judgment seat of Christ. After the millennium, which is after the 1,000 years Jesus rules and reigns on the earth, after the millennium, the lost will be judged at what is called the great white throne. No Christian, no believer will be judged at the great white throne. We're judged at the judgment seat of Christ. The lost is judged at the great white throne. Let me move quickly with two scriptures here under number three, Revelation 20, verse 10 and 11. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One day, thank God, there's not going to be any more devil for us to contend with. In verse 11, and I saw a great white throne. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. A great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. All right, listen carefully. Only believers will be at the judgment seat of Christ. I emphasize 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10, and we have read that verse, but I want to read one for you that we have not read, and this is Romans 14, 12. In your bulletin today, it says Romans 4.12. I want you to correct that. It should be Romans 14.12. You need to make that correction if you go back to reread it again. Revelation 14.12. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, Romans 14.12. Romans 14.12. And look at this very carefully. They'll get the scripture on the screen. Romans 14.12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, the word us in this particular passage is talking about believers at the judgment seat. All right, so these are the scriptures that I want you to understand. Now, if you go back real quickly to 2 Corinthians 5, 10, there are a couple of words that are very significant that I want us to focus on just for a moment. And it's the third word in the verse, for we must, underline the word must, that word is imperative. Because the worst or the, or the, the must in this verse, it really means a required necessity. It's sort of like this. When Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse number 7, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
ye must be born again. Do you remember Jesus saying that? Ye must be born again. Jesus was saying, there's absolutely no other alternative. If you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. That word must that Jesus used in that passage has the same credibility and the weight and the same meaning as this passage. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I want you to notice the word all. Underline that word. That, that means that there are going to be no exceptions. No excuses, no restroom breaks, no sickness. Someone may say, well, pastor, I, I don't do well standing in front of crowds. Well, it's just like riding a horse. You better practice. Because on this day, every single believer is going to be subjected to it. Now notice the next word in this verse that's worth underlining. And that is the word appear. Because this is a spiritual summons that every born-again believer will have. Now, number four, why is there a judgment seat? Again, look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here's the reason, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done. Look at this whether it be good or bad. This is the day that the Lord Jesus will have a reckoning with us. This will indeed be a time of judgment and a time of reward. That means that there's going to be a positive element to the judgment seat and there is going to be a negative aspect to the judgment seat. This morning, I want to focus on the positive just for a moment. I don't want to leave out the negative altogether, but I want us to look at this pertaining to the rewards that is given at the judgment seat. Some might assume that because some people may have more rewards than, than another, that God has given room for jealousy at the judgment seat. I want you to think about this. It creates an interesting conversation. Pastor, does that mean that there are going to be some Christians that are more happier in heaven than some? And if the if that's the case, preacher, if, if, if there's going to be some who get more rewards than others, doesn't that open the door for jealousy and isn't somebody going to be happier than this one and going to create some feuds and frictions in heaven? Does that mean that there's going to be, preacher, because some people may receive more rewards than some, does that mean that there's going to be a first-class heaven, a second-class heaven, and a third-class heaven? Absolutely not. Listen carefully. This is so personalized about the judgment seat of Christ that I believe that the only focus that any of us is going to have there, the attention is going to be strictly upon our own individuality, our own self. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to be worrying about this person and about this person, what he did, what she did, what he didn't do and what he didn't do. When we're standing before the Lord, we're only going to be concerned about what we did. And really truthfully, shouldn't that not be now? We ought not to live our lives worrying about what he said, she did, and all of this mess. 
If we spend all of our time worrying about ourselves, we don't have any time worrying about anybody else. Now look at this. I believe the only emotion that is going to be felt at the judgment seat is that of rejoicing or either that of being ashamed. And I think it's possible to be ashamed at the judgment seat. How do you know, preacher? Because of 1 John 2, 28. It is possible that some of us may be ashamed when the rapture takes place, when we meet the Lord in the air where eagles fly at the judgment seat because of this verse. And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear, the judgment seat, the rapture, when he shall appear, we may have confidence. And look at this. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. Okay, let me move on and discuss three aspects of the judgment seat of Christ for you real quickly here. I want us to rehearse it. Where does it all begin? Where uh, are these rewards given in the air? First of all, let me say that there's some rewards given to us on earth and primarily the rewards that we get on earth are typically called blessings. Don't lose me here. At the present time, when God rewards us, he blesses us to certain degrees. All of us know what it is to be blessed. Let me emphasize something, that there is a faithful service reward of serving Jesus in this life that accompanies us with great blessings. Our great reward for serving Jesus on this earth will not only be in heaven, but he blesses us for serving him in this life. We enjoy those blessings now, but there's going to be eternal rewards that are given at the judgment seat beyond the earthly blessings that we enjoy now. Now, these rewards are going to be given out right after the rapture at the judgment seat. Now, listen carefully. Learn these spiritual truths this morning. Number five, quickly. There are three judgments that the Bible speaks about that has to do with born-again believers. And on your bulletin today, I've given you some room to write these three judgments down. And I hope that you will. The first judgment is the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin is a past judgment. The judgment of sin took place on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was making atonement, making the payment. He was dying for our sin. And when we receive what he has done for us on Calvary, when we receive what he did for us on the cross, then we receive, we are free from this judgment of sin. In fact, Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. And the way that you become in Christ is when you are born again. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so when a person receives Christ, we receive the pardon from the judgment of sin. It was at the cross through Jesus as he dealt with us as sinners. You remember the old song we sing from time to time at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight 
and now I'm happy all the day. So there is a past judgment. Jesus died for our sin. Sin was judged on the cross. Number two, there is also a present judgment. And that is how God deals with us now. You see, the past judgment, God dealt with us as sinners. This is imperative. Follow me now. God dealt with us as sinners on the cross. Right now, God deals with us as sons. Those of us who are born again, he now deals with us as sons. On the cross, he dealt with us as sinners. Right now in this life, he deals with us as sons. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, this is a judgment we have to encounter every single time that we sin against God in this life. And as believers, when we sin, the Holy Spirit brings deep conviction to our heart and to our spirit. The Holy Spirit lets us know with deep conviction, this is wrong, this is sin, this is against God. The flesh is not convicting you of that. It's the Holy Spirit as a born-again believer. And thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we do not confess our sin as a child of God, as a son of God, if we don't confess it, God will sharply deal with it. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 and 7, the scripture says this, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You remember the scripture? To him gave he power to become the sons of God. Look at this. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? All right, so keep in mind, on the cross, God dealt with us in the judgment as sinners. Today, while we're living, God judges us as sons. But when we get to the judgment seat, God will deal with us in the judgment of saints or servants is a better word. Servants. So you have sinners. Uh, you, you have right now the being born again, washed in the blood. Servants. And then he gives us this wonderful crowning place at the judgment seat. This takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. Sinners, sons, and servants. You can get that. That's how he judges us. Sinners, sons, and servants. Remember those three. Now I want you to look again at Romans 14, verse 10 through 12. But why hast thou, dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand, all stand, born again, redeemed, those who are counted righteous before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then every one of us 
shall give an account of himself to God. Now, how will we be judged? Number six, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 through 15 tells us how we will be judged. In verse 11, the scripture says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, look at this, every man's work, that's in reference to all of us. We must all, all give an account. Every man's work, not some of us, most of us, but all of us. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That's talking about at the judgment seat of Christ. If any man's work shall be burned, listen now, this is one of the greatest verses in the scripture on eternal security. I hope there's no one here this morning or watching by internet that believes you can lose your salvation. If you believe that, then you have a big problem with verse number four or 15. Look at this. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That means we'll lose a reward. Maybe two, maybe three. But look at this. But he himself shall be saved. Can, can anybody say amen? I'm talking about this. We get at the judgment seat and our works are tried. And if they're from the motivation of a pure servant's heart, only for the Savior to be exalted and uplifted and glorified and edified in our life. If it was all done for the master, then according to the word of God, we're going to receive a reward. But if anything we have done has been for the pat on the back, are you good brother, are you good sister, any of that, the word says this, you're going to receive a loss of reward. Those works as they're tried in the fires of heaven, they will not come forth as gold. They will be incentivized. They will be destroyed. However, you may lose your reward, but you cannot lose your salvation. Look at this. But he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. The passage of scripture definitely deals with the choices that we make in life. And every one of us will be going through a very careful examination. All of our life's work will be tried with fire. Don't focus your attention in this life on the pleasures of the world. At this judgment, it would not profit anybody if they had gained the whole world. Moses knew that very clearly, and I believe he could see the land, even in his day, even in the Old Testament, I believe Moses could see the land that was fairer than day. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 through 26, the scripture says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he hid three months of his parents because he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. By faith, Moses, when he was come to the years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But then this verse right here, Look at verse number 26. This is amazing. This is Old Testament. This is talking about Moses. But look, esteeming the reproach 
of Christ. Look at that. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. That verse means that Moses was willing to turn his back and walk away from all of the treasures and all of the pleasures of Egypt because he had his eyes on Christ. He had his eyes on heaven. God is going to remember every single thing we have done in this life. All of our works are going to be judged. And somebody might say, well, pastor, I thought we're not saved by works. We're not saved by works. If you were in the Wednesday night service, I think I gave about six or eight scriptures that teaches that we're not saved by works. Ephesians 2.8 teaches us, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. But listen carefully, works become a vital part of our Christian life after we are saved. It's important. Ephesians 2.10 says we're his workmanship unto good works. James chapter 2 verse 26 says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. None of our works is going to escape the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of the Lord. We're either going to receive rewards or we're going to lose rewards. The Lord Jesus has his eyes on our works, our life, our rewards right now. He will make no mistakes in Matthew chapter 10, get these scriptures quickly on the screen. Verse 41 and 42. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And so what these verses are teaching is that nothing that you do for the Lord will ever be counted as insignificant and will go in a high degree of notice to the Lord. Make sure that what you do for the Lord counts for eternity. Second John verse eight says, look to yourselves that we lose not, we lose not the things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Number seven, quickly. Now, what kind of rewards will be given? I believe that there are going to be rewards of positions in heaven. And what that means is this. When we get to heaven, all of us are going to have a job. You might say, well, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> yep. All of us are going to have a job. Have you ever thought about what you wanted your job in heaven to be? What you would like to do in heaven for Jesus for all eternity? Have you ever wondered about that? In Revelation 22, 5, the scripture says, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall, look at this, rain, not loaf, they shall reign forever and ever. First Corinthians 6, verse 1 through 3, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you and ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters, know ye not 
that we shall judge angels. I don't understand that, but that's in the Bible. That's the word of God. How much more things that pertain to this life. So listen, if you thought that when you get to heaven, that all you're going to be doing is riding on clouds, drinking rainbow smoothies, you're in for a disappointment. That ain't going to happen. Listen carefully. Some will receive rewards. There, there are also rewards of adornment. Our musicians need to come, and I need to go exceptionally fast. In fact, I'm not going to have time to read all of these references, but listen. The Bible speaks about five different crowns that can be won at the judgment seat. Crown number one is the incorruptible crown. I've given you the scripture. You can fill it in the blank. The incorruptible crown. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and verse number 27 through those verses. And that crown is given primarily to those faithful Christians. Are you faithful to the Lord? Listen carefully. Are you faithful? Are you faithful in reading his word? Are you faithful in obeying his word? Have you faithfully shared his word? Number two is the crown of rejoicing. And that scripture's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 19. That, by the way, is the soul winner's crown. Have you ever won a soul? Are you winning souls? Are you concerned for lost souls? You'll have an opportunity to receive the crown of rejoicing. Number three is the crown of life. James chapter 1 and verse number 12 talks about that. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 10. The crown of life is given for overcoming temptations and being faithful to the Lord when confronted with your faith. Crown number four is the crown of glory. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 4, the scripture talks about that. And the crown of glory will be given primarily to God's faithful pastor. However, let me emphasize this, God's faithful minister. We are all ministers of the gospel. Just as though we are all missionaries, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he wasn't talking primarily to Peter, James, and John. He said, listen, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He commissioned all of us to be preachers and missionaries and witnesses. The crown of righteousness, number five. This crown is given to all who have longed for and waited for the second coming of Christ. And lastly, number eight, what's the purpose of all of this? What's the purpose of all these crowns, all these rewards at the judgment seat? What's the point of all this, preacher? Somebody might say this, preacher, I'm not interested in the least bit of a crown. I'm not interested in any rewards. Man, I just want to get safely through the territory without the devil scalping me. I, I just want to get in by the skin of my teeth. I don't care about none of that stuff. The only thing I'm worried about is not dying and going to hell. Well, let me encourage you to look at this from a different perspective today. Because Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 4 sums it all up. What's the purpose in all of this? 
And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now picture that, all born-again believers with crowns of gold. Every single believer is gathered in this assembly. Now I want you to look at this very carefully. The, the assembly is sitting before the throne, and they're clothed in white raiments. The scripture says they're wearing crowns. Why or what is the purpose of these rewards? <clears throat> the answer is verse 10. The 420 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lived forever and ever. And look at this. Do you think the greatest joy for you in heaven is simply just being there? Not dying and going to hell? Well, that's wonderful. I've only met one person in my lifetime that said to me verbally that they wanted to die and go to hell. Only one depraved individual. But do you think that just being there is enough? Look what they do. And cast their crowns, their rewards, before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. So listen, let me show you something. If this is the judgment seat, we're working in life and we're traveling in life and we're going through life, many, many people fail to see the other side of the judgment seat. We're too busy pleasure-seeking and doing our own thing and worldly lust and pleasures and affections and commotion and troubles and trials. And we're so full of all of this stuff and we, we can't see the other side of the judgment. But let me show you something. On the other side of the judgment seat, it's not just about not going to hell, but it's about taking these crowns and rewards and fallen down at the nail-scarred feet of Jesus and lay these crowns and rewards at his feet and humbly bow to the king and sing, falling prostrate on your face, all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. I can assure you, friend, that when you get there, it's not just going to be about not dying and going to hell and squeaking by the skin of your teeth, which nobody can do. It's only by the blood of Jesus. But when you get there, it's going to be about, listen, God's not going to give us crowns that we can strut around on the street of gold like some decorated peacock all through heaven. Those crowns and rewards are really not made for us. They're made to present to the one who shed every drop of blood he had to make it possible to spend eternity with him. Now, if that don't make the devil mad, I don't know what will. Can the church say amen? amen.
bring forth the royal diadem and crown him king of kings and lord of lords. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.